Welcome to the Philosophy Podcast, where host and lacrosse expert Jamie Monroe will do what he does best, talk about lacrosse. Each episode will provide listeners with education, insights, stories, and lessons about the lacrosse world. We will discuss current events, coaching, philosophies, and college lacrosse recruiting. Now let's get started with your host, Jamie Monroe. The Philosophy Podcast is brought to you by Oxia Time, a cool watch company focused on university-branded watches. John Canaris is the founder of Oxia Time, and he was the goalie at Penn in the late 80s who led his team to the Final Four. John is actually best known for being the goalie that Gary Gate dunked on in the Air Gate. Oxia Time makes beautiful, Swiss-made, authentic watches whose design and quality match the essence of the universities they represent. I can attest to the quality of these watches. John hooked me up with a sweet Brown University Oxia watch, and I think it's the nicest thing I own. Initially licensed with eight Ivy League schools, Oxia keeps adding new schools each month. One of the coolest things Oxia offers is custom timepieces to commemorate championships or to celebrate storied teams. Check out the UVA Lacrosse Championship watch. It's sick. Princeton did a really nice one last year as well. Oxia even did an LSU football championship watch this year. For any teams interested in creating a custom watch this season, Oxia will upgrade it at no extra cost to a championship watch if your team wins a conference or national championship next year. For players, parents, and coaches interested in custom team watches, check them out at oxiatime.com. That's A-X-I-A time.com. How's it going, everybody? Really excited to welcome Chaz Woodson to the Philosophy Podcast. Chaz is the new head coach at Hampton University, a Brown guy, and really fired up to have him on the show. How's it going, Chaz? Life is good, man. Thanks for having me on. Uh, yeah, you know, appreciate the time. Fired up to have you on and talk some lacrosse and, uh, and learn more about you and your plans for uh, Hampton University. Sure. All right, let's kick it off the way I usually do with, with uh, your journey. If you could kind of tell us where, how you got started and now you made your way from high school to college to pros to Hampton, it would be really interesting for all of us to hear about. Yeah, man. And uh, the short version, as I'm sure you, you, you want and, uh, and everybody wants, but um, I'm back here as the head coach at, at Hampton. Um, so I'm back here in Hampton Roads, but this is where I grew up. So it's, it's kind of cool to have it all come full circle. Um, <clears throat> grew up about 25 minutes from here playing, uh, playing lacrosse at Norfolk Academy uh, and finished up, graduated from the Blue Ridge School just outside of Charlottesville. Was fortunate enough to go on to Brown University, play four years there. And, um, it, you know, professional lacrosse was not really in the plan because it, it wasn't a thing. Um, at least professional outdoor lacrosse wasn't. Um, but was fortunate enough that it was around when I graduated and, and I figured, you know, why not take the opportunity to compete against the best players in the world and see if I could do it. And, and I did it and managed to, to do so. I don't remember the math, but from summer 2005 to summer 2017, so 12, 13 years. And, um, and here we are, I, I've been coaching and teaching in Miami um, over the course of that time. And then this opportunity popped up and, and I couldn't say no to it. Yeah. It's incredible that you're back home. Yeah. It, it's, 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 a, it's actually a really interesting story that we can get into later if you want, but 
Um, in, in some respects, Hampton University is why I ended up playing lacrosse and why I ended up back here at Hampton University. Wow. We will, we will get into that, but let's go back to the Norfolk Academy days. Um, sure. your, uh, your, our mutual friend, Drew McKnight, connected us. Um, I mean, we knew each other. We're both Brown guys. We kind of, but not super well. And it was really great. Yeah. He uh, connected us a month or two ago. And, um, you know, he was one of the great players to come out. A lot of great players come out of Norfolk Academy. But uh, talk to us a little bit about that program and your mentors with Coach Duquette. Yeah, and, and and that's why, you know, this sport is so cool because, you know, Drew's a guy that's, uh, you know, kind of behind the scenes helping helping us right now. But um, but Drew's a guy that I looked up to when I was growing up and yeah. uh, a guy that, you know, played for Coach DeCat, but also played for my father when my father was a JV lacrosse coach. And, um, you know, Drew was part of a great run uh, of, you know, classes, teams um, at Norfolk Academy. And, um, and so when I was a young kid, like we didn't have division one lacrosse on TV all the time. We didn't have professional players to look up to like Drew and those guys were the guys that as a young player, I wanted to be like. Um, and so it, it is cool that, that he was able to connect us and, and play this role. But, you know, Coach Duquette is, is certainly one of the, the best coaches uh, in the game. And one of the guys that I, I think among people who know, um, really know that, that, that he knows what he's doing and always has known what he's doing and um, certainly mentored me and coached me um, through the game very well. You know, he's a guy that I still go back to, whether it's coaching tips, playing tips, uh, you know, even as a professional, uh, I was still going back to him. Hey, coach, what can I do here? What, what do you think of this? What does this look like? Um, uh, we did some film study when I was in college, just different things. So, um, and he's not the only one. I, I played for some other great coaches, but certainly coming up in Norfolk and, um, and being around for the, the, the very start of the growth of the game around here. I shouldn't say the start of the growth, but yeah. um you know, when I, when I was playing, actually my first year playing was fourth grade. And there was, that was the beginning of the youth league here. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I went out and watched some youth lacrosse and it was like, there were hundreds and hundreds of kids at this one, just one facility. And they're still talking about, you know, the game being young and growing. And it was night and day from when I was here. So um, it's been it's been cool to see the growth of the game down here, um, but but certainly guys like Coach Duquette and um, Coach Duffy and Drew and all those guys are, are are a major part of that growth, whether anybody what, knows them or not. What did you take from Drew McKnight's game that you added to your game? Uh, I wish we had film of. I have a little bit of high school film. Uh, but I wish I could compare my like junior, senior year stuff to Drew's, you know, freshman, sophomore year stuff. I shouldn't even say he, he was a phenomenal player uh, in high school. And um, I took a lot of my game from him. So I've, I've always kind of picked different pieces of different players games throughout my career. Yeah. Um, I mean, all the way up and, you know, until I was last playing in 2017 and, yeah. um, but watching Drew, like I initially learned how to split dives from watching Drew. Yeah. I, I went to some camps and that type of stuff, but watching Drew and trying to emulate what he did, that's where I got my original split dodge. And then you add in, you know, basketball and football and all that type of stuff. And, and it changes a little bit. Um, 
but Drew was the guy that I modeled my game after. Yeah, very cool. Now, what what about Coach Duquette? What what have you what have you taken from him? Some specifics um, that that have brought you to where you are as a coach. Yeah, um, the game is is meant to be played creatively. It's meant to be played um, with a level of enjoyment. And I think from a coaching standpoint, one thing that I've always gone back to, especially once I started, became a, a, a head coach in high school is that, um, you know, I think we got to a point where the game was being overcoached. Yeah. And, and on my end, on our end, um, quick sidebar, but part of the reason I stayed at the, at the school that I stayed at in Miami was because I really appreciated what we were about philosophically. And it was never about wins and losses and, and our staff was as competitive as any other staff around. Um, but it was always rooted in the development of our uh, student athletes as young men, right? It wasn't about um, how many championships are we gonna win or can we go undefeated this season? It was all about these guys developing and there's good and bad in that. The, the good was philosophically I'm in, I'm very much in alignment with that because all of the coaches that I've played for all of the, the coaches that I felt were great influences and, and people that I really respected uh, lacrosse and otherwise kind of were rooted in that same philosophy and it helped me to thrive. But then what I figured out or what I found out realized, however you want to say it is that um, we got a little bit too far down that path. So every other day we're talking life lessons with our guys. And when I started thinking back, I'm like, I can't remember too many times where my coaches were talking about life lessons, but I remember learn. I, I know I learned these life lessons with them, right? So uh, I got to a point where it was all about fun. It was like, let's make lacrosse fun again. Let's not overcoach it from a, um, from a um, you know, development standpoint. Let's not overcoach it from a, an X's and O's standpoint, let's make this enjoyable because that's where, that's where you learn the lessons is when you're enjoying the experience and you're having fun. Yep. Um, not to say that every moment is fun, but um, so that's, that's kind of what I've taken from him is that like coach the game, coach, coach lacrosse, teach guys how to play the game um, and then let them enjoy it and let them make decisions. One of the things he talked about in a call I was on with him was that he, he was like, we coached all week. And then, and, and we felt like we prepared our guys all week so that when they stepped on the field game day, you know, you, you're not gonna be able to teach them anything new during a game. You're not gonna be able to coach a whole lot of different things during the game. At that point, you gotta rely on them and trust that you've done your best throughout the week or the last two days, however much you, time you had to prepare, um, that you've done the preparation and you've set them up for success and then let them do what they do. Let them make decisions, good, bad, or indifferent, yep. um, and go from there. And so I, I think that's always kind of been a way that I've approached, not just coaching lacrosse, but whether it's been, you know, high school basketball, girls, middle school basketball, whatever, it's all been, always been kind of the same thing. Love it. Um, so how did you end up at Brown? And talk to us a little bit about that stage of your life and your, your coaches and your teammates and, and your mentors. Yeah. Um, I end up at Brown. There's a few things. One thing was Brown contacted me on July 1st, whatever it was that you could do it and, and sort of stuck with me. And so that was important to me. 
especially when I was moving from uh, Norfolk Academy to Blue Ridge, I think I kind of got lost in the shuffle and some schools that were contacting me fell off and lost track of where I was. Um, but Coach Duquette also said, so uh, we had an interesting relationship at that point because when I said I was leaving to go to Blue Ridge, I don't think he was very happy about that. Um, I, he understood it, but, um, you know, I, I, I had grown up under him, you know, from a lacrosse standpoint. And then on top of that, we had just, um, we had gone almost undefeated and won a state championship the year before. And so now I'm out of here my senior year. Wow. And, um, you know, and, and that, it worked itself out and it, it was the best decision for me, I think. Um, and I think it was the best decision you know, he, he recognizes that as well. <clears throat> but all that is to say, when I first told him, I said, hey, Brown contacted me. He said, if Brown offers you, that's where you need to go. And that kind of stuck with me because it, it was a place. It was a place that I was not necessarily going to get into without lacrosse. In fact, it's not even a place I would have applied to without lacrosse. And so ultimately, that's what this is about, right? Like opening some doors that otherwise might not be open to you. And so that was one thing. And then on top of that, um, Britton Durkak um, was a guy that I played with since I was growing up. Um, he left for a couple of years, went to Woodbury. So we lost those two years. Then I left my senior year. So we actually only played one year in high school together, but we were looking at a handful of the same team, same schools. And, um, you know, we got to talking back and forth and he said he thought he was leaning toward Brown. I said, oh, well, sounds, sounds fun. You know, at least I get to go there with somebody I know. And um, so that was another piece of it. And, you know, I think Dave Evans had had uh, some say. I think he was coaching at Woodbury at the time and yep. uh, put a word in for me. And, and I'll never forget, I never knew this um, until I got to Brown, but because I didn't realize, I didn't know who he was at the time, but Dave was on the sideline chirping me as, as only Dave could. Yeah. You know, I'm just a high school guy playing lacrosse. I don't know what the heck is going on. And Dave is over there chirping me from the side. And, uh, but come to find out he, he's one of the guys that put in a word. And um, so there are a lot of things that kind of came together, but ultimately that, that was a great decision for me academically and otherwise, um, you know, and the, the open curriculum was huge for me. Yeah, same. So, yeah, I mean, that, there, there were a lot of good things about, about that decision. No math or science for this guy. Listen, <laughs> if I could go back, I would take a math because I think it's important. Um, now, actually, I don't know if I would take a math. I, I've done all right with math so far, but I would, I would probably take a language. Uh, I could have used Spanish the last 15 years. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I was in the same boat, man. I finished, and I finished half of my major freshman year. So it was like, wow. I, I just, because I knew what I wanted to do. So I went in there and I, it was probably the most structured I've ever been academically, with the exception of maybe my senior year of high school. So, so uh, who was that? Who recruited you? And I, there was a coaching change that went on during the course of your time, right? So what was the, uh, what was the deal with that? So the, the coaching change was after me. So I came in under Scott Nelson and he, we were actually his first recruited class. So, which was another piece of that, right? Like initially it was coach lasagna that was, that was recruiting me. That's what I thought. And then all of a sudden there's a coaching change and 
Coach Finley and Coach Fraioli kind of picked up where he left off. And um, and so, yeah, so that worked out. But I, I came in under, under Coach Nelson, and uh, I think he, he, Lars came in there in 07. So he was there a couple years after me. So you play, you were there 02, 03, 04, and 05? Correct. Got it. And, um, yeah, you guys, uh, Coach Nelson was coming off a, a big-time career at NAS. Yeah. And um, was uh, really, really meticulous about what he coached and taught. What, did, what have you taken from him as a coach and a player? Preparation. Um, preparation is, is one thing. I mean, and, and again, you, you, when you think about the people that, that highly influence you, I, I find that typically there's a lot of similarities. And a lot of the coaches that I thought were really good coaches harped on preparation. Um, so that was one thing. Um, he also, in his ways, um, was really big on leadership and really big on accountability and making sure that um, the leaders and the older guys and the guys that were supposed to do the right thing were the ones setting the example for everybody else, um, which, you know, I, I found myself uh, on the wrong end of that stick a couple times, uh, nothing, nothing major, but um, just from the standpoint of like, hey, you, you're a senior, you're a junior, whatever it is, and um, we expect this of you. Your teammates look at you this way, so this is how you need to handle yourself. Um, and this is what we expect of you. And, and so those type of lessons, I think, uh, he was very big on. Uh, and, and just, uh, he, used, he used to try to relate things to life a lot in, in that, um, you know, he would say, hey, fellas, this is where we're in a down spot right now, but like in real life, you can't go do X, Y, Z just because you're in a down spot. So we got to figure this out. Um, or uh, there's there's a couple other ones that I can't say on here, but he, uh, but, but he I think he always had a good perspective on things, even you know even in times that were a little trying. Yeah. And um, as far as the way you coach now, yeah, there are certain things, whether it be drills or skill development or X's and O's that you've taken from Coach Nelson or Coach Frioli or Coach Finley yeah. uh, to your to your coaching repertoire now. Yeah, I, I think um, I, I learned a lot from Coach Duquette, uh, and and it didn't stop there and it didn't stop in college either. I, I learned, you know, whether it was coach Tucker or coach Garber or whoever, right? Like I learned a lot of things from a lot of different people, but I think foundationally, I find myself rooted in more of coach Duquette's philosophies, yeah. but then just from a general like X's and O's standpoint of like getting the ball downside through X, running a 54 drill, like yeah. the progression of offense, those type of things, I think. Um, and, and a handful of, plays right a handful of very specific plays um i took away from from my time at brown and, and the classic um the classic backdoor play kick it inside and cut back door <laughs> kick it inside and cut back door i have not yet been able to uh run run anything like that successfully at the high school level um but i did try it i did try <laughs> it. um but I, but i think uh you know, one of the things that I, I really took from, from, again, from an X's and O's standpoint is just uh, 
having having plays um, that are not just one hitters. Yeah, um, you know, like plays that like if it doesn't work, cool. You end up in the, it, there's some continuity behind. Exactly. Uh, with with us in high school, we didn't we didn't run any plays. I can't remember one play we actually ran. Yep. And and that's because we were taught how to just play lacrosse, right? Like yeah. somebody's coming your way, get through, right? Coming down in transition, you don't have a break, ball's got to go down the side. Like little things like that. The ball has to change size through X. Um, just basic, basic lacrosse philosophy that, you know, when things don't work out, you can still keep playing because you're not beholden to this one play and this one set of rules to do this, this, and this. So you moved on from, uh, from the college ranks to the pro ranks and played a long career. Like, would you say 12 years? Yeah, 12 12 years. 12 years. I coached against you one time in your last year. With oh, the, yeah. Where were you Atlanta Blaze. I was a defense coordinator for the Atlanta Blaze in 2017. You hammered us at your place and we got a W at our place. Yeah, we went down there and wasn't that a pouring rain? There's some delays in that game down there in Atlanta. I think it was, yeah, in Atlanta it was rainy. It was, it was a nice night in uh, in Florida. Yeah. 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 Um, that was fun. Yeah. But how did your game change from from college to pro? I think the biggest thing for me was I was not burnt out and I continued to get better. You know, it, it's kind of interesting to have, you know, I wouldn't talk about it like this, generally speaking, but to have a name in lacrosse, right, based on my play and all of that. Um, but I actually like coming out of college, I, I wasn't a household name. Like, I, I think, you know, people in the Ivy League or like certain people that really pay attention to all of lacrosse might have known who I was, but I wasn't really any kind of uh, household name. So I, I continued to get better. Yep. And like I was saying before, I pulled a lot of things from different people at every stop. I mean, one of the first things was like picking up tips from Connor Gill when I was, when I was first in Boston, like, yeah, that dude knew the game and he, and he oh, understood yeah. how to get people in the right positions. Um, and he could talk you through it and, and be a leader about it without like yelling at you or like belittling you. Like he knew how to actually take a young guy who still had room to grow yep. and, and, and teach me some things. Mike Batista. Um, he was another one of those guys. Um, I don't know who, where you move on to in LA, getting to play with Mike Watson. Oh yeah. Uh, and, and being able to ask him certain things and Jesse Hubbard, my second year in LA, he was another guy that, that, uh, you know, and, and to this day, like we still talk every now and then, but, but he's a guy that will pull me aside and say, Hey, you know, think about this, or, you know, maybe when you, when you make this dodge, have your head up because this will be open. Even little things like, talking to me about my stick and how to string my stick and to, you know, I was notorious for like fixing and tampering with my stick, like on game day, 20 minutes before we leave the locker room. And um, he used to get on me about that jokingly, but he was serious. And, yeah. and it's to this day, it's, you know, things that I, I take to heart. So um, I just always try to, to pick up things along the way. I, I don't feel like I've ever been, you know, too good to learn. Um, whether that's as a player or a coach. 
I think if we took made a highlight video from your uh, pro career of just diving goals and dunks, it might be like a five or 10 minute video. Um, it, it probably would. And the interesting thing about that is I learned all of that as a young player in high school, because when I first started playing, uh, the dive and landing in the crease was still legal. Yep. My first two years playing varsity lacrosse, it was still legal. And, um, you know, so that, those were things that I actually developed way back yep. that I was able to bring back into the fold after I graduated. I think that helped me to be a better player as well. When you would, when you would dive, you had a lot of different ways you do it. Sometimes you would, you, 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 you'd beat your guy underneath and kind of dive across the front of the net. Other times you might sell that and keep the goalie on that side and be able to like tuck it, diving around the backside and don't mm -hmm. get over the top. I mean, how many different ways did you use the dive? Well, it was never, it was never as reckless as it looked. Um, I guess reckless is relative, right? Like physically it might've been reckless, but there was always a reason to it. I never just dove just to dive or just because like, oh, yeah, obviously. you know, I had nothing else to do. So every single different angle, every single different way was for a different reason. It might be because it gave me a better angle to get inside of a defender. It might've been because I could see there was no help or I, I, the, the slide couldn't get to me. Um, it might have been a matter of, like you said, trying to move the goalie to a different space. Um, so there, there was always a different way of going about it. And, and ultimately, what I learned with, with diving, jumping, all of it, is that it's really about where you can get your stick, where you can get the face of your stick, right? Can, can the face of your stick see the goal? And, and if the face of your stick can see the goal, then your body doesn't need to be in any, any particular position. And so that's what it really came down to me. How many different ways can I get my stick in front of the cage so that the ball can find the net? Yeah, so cool. Um, there's some unbelievable, you know, you talk about Mike Watson. He, he, he had a pretty good dive game and, and Mikey Powell had a pretty sick dive game. Yeah. Who are some of the other guys that you would watch and sort well, of study what they did and get ideas from? Yeah, I think early on. So I, I again, I watched Drew do some, some aerial type things and, um, Maybe not in the same ways, but yeah. I saw him leave his feet sometimes, and and I was like, "That's cool, I can do that." And Coach Duquette will tell you if he tells you the story. We went to watch uh, Virginia play somebody, and Doug Knight and Mike Watson were playing, and and if he tells it, he says, "I came back and asked if I could do that," and he said yes, and so I started doing it. Um, but Doug Knight, uh, Mike Watson, John Christmas was another guy. They, I mean. I went back and watched him. He's another guy I took some stuff from. Yeah. But I went back and watched, I think it was maybe the 2002 Virginia Q semifinal or something like that. It was one of those games. And just watched how fast he was. Oh, yeah. And how he, and how he used angles very well. Not just for diving, but for dodging in general. He used, he used angles on the, on the field very, very well. Um, his feet were so sick too. I remember watching oh him when gosh. he was like a junior at 205 camp at Loyola. Yeah. And he was like running, he was just backpedaling and looking and he was like going faster backwards than most people can run, man. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, you know, I, I watched a lot of those. I watched a lot of film on Mike, uh, Powell. I think he and I 
kind of approach the game the same way from the, the creativity standpoint. I, I think he's a phenomenal player. Uh, you know, all, he, all three fouls, but, um, but I think just from an attack standpoint and like, a, hey, what can I do that's a little different? How can I, how can I beat somebody a little differently? What can I do that's, that hasn't been done? Um, you know, one of the cool things I've told this story before is he, there's, there's a video of him diving um, across the back of the net when we were, this is when we were both yeah. playing in Boston. I remember that. And what I really think is, uh, or what makes the story cool for me is that I had been thinking about that exact same thing. Um, and we're in practice one day and afterwards he comes up and he goes, Chaz, I got one that's going to change the game. And I'm like, I hope it's not the same thing that we've been thinking of. Sure enough, it was the same thing. So we sat and chopped it up for five minutes or so. And then like, oh, I don't remember if it was that same day or if it was like a week later and he pulled it off. And I was like, man, he beat me to it. So the listeners know what we're talking about here, I think is sort of like a goal line underneath as if you were going to come across the front of the cage right-handed, but then you just dive across the back and and dunk it in the can, right? And, and yeah, and backhanded it. So he, he kind of, I don't remember if he actually jab, jab step as he's coming down the, you know, down the goal line to the front of the cage and pulls it back and dives and backhands it in like that. And, and really what we were, what we were talking about uh, in our little five minute conversation was, does it make more sense to backhand it or to come around one hand and dive in front hand, one hand. Yeah. And, and so uh, the next year when I was in LA or two years later in LA, I did it and I did it the other way. Um, you went one so it was fun. Yeah. But uh, yeah. you know, like that, I like iron sharpens iron, man. I, I've always been a fan of taking things from different people and um, from whether it's a diving standpoint or even just figuring out different steps, different ways to dodge. One of the things I've learned watching Mike Powell um, this was more like my junior going into senior year is I noticed he didn't turn his back very much. So even when he was dodging hard, he would, he would split to his right. If he had to come back, he wasn't doing a lot of rolling, maybe behind the cage he did, but he always had his eyes up. Right. So when he turned his back, he, he, he would, he would lose people. So I don't know if that's how he thought of it, but right. Like you, yeah. you lose people when you turn your back. So if he stops and steps away or stops and comes back over the top this way, he's still got his eyes up and he can hit anybody that he needs to hit. So that was one of the things that I tried to change in my game um, my senior year. Um, so a lot of different things, a lot of yeah, different people. So. Did you, uh, Mike, Mikey Powell would always do the two-footed jump stops and swims and all that stuff. Did you try to add some of that stuff or was that already in your game? I, I, I tried to add some of that stuff to be honest with you, man, there's a level of like quickness and stop and go that like some people have and some people don't. Yep. Um, I didn't have that same kind of stop and go. And, and I know people would look at me maybe and say that that's crazy, but like, it is crazy. Like he, <laughs> he had another level of, yeah. of what he was able to do. And so, you know, and, and you see that with all athletes in all different sports, right? You look at somebody and you're like, that's not that difficult. But then you go try to do it and it's, you're not Kobe, you're not LeBron, you're not Jordan. Like as much as you think it should be easy to do this thing, yeah. it's not that easy. And so, um, 
Yeah, there, there's some stuff that I try to take from him that I was able to add into my game. There's some stuff that it's like, that's not that's not what I have in the repertoire right now. Yeah, I remember talk, I was talking to Kyle Harrison about it one time at, at one of my camps. And he was like, you know what? I think Mikey moves so fast that the game literally just slows down. Like everybody else is in slow motion to him. That might be true. I, I, don't know. I know. I feel like he's like the equivalent of like a fly. <laughs> Where like your hand's coming down and you can just kind of look at it and know it's not going to hit you and you can get out of there. And right. everything is so slow. He's yeah, man. I think the, the closest we've seen to that, I think, is, is Mike Sowers so far. Um, yeah. So I, I'm really curious to see if we have a season, uh, how that plays out for him at Duke this year. Yeah, no doubt. Um, Chaz, what was it like growing up as uh, African-American student athlete, athlete pro in a predominantly white sport that really puts you in a predominantly white world? How's it going, everybody? Jamie here. Thanks for listening. If you've been enjoying the content in my Philacrosophy podcast, my Inside the Eight podcast, or my a Lacrosse Weekend blogs, I would encourage you to check out the store at jamefreesports.com. I've created awesome content for coaches, players, and parents in both men's and women's lacrosse. For coaches, the coaches training program. It's, it's a combination of cutting edge and practical. We have division one men's and women's coaches all the way down to high school, JV and youth. For players, I've created JM3 player academies, which are designed to teach every variation of every skill for boys and girls across. And for parents, I've created JM3 recruiting portal, where I've taken all of the content from my blogs, my podcasts, from webinars and other interviews, and pooled all of this information in one place where parents can get access to incredible content and insights from the very coaches that you're hoping to play for. Thanks and enjoy the podcast. Well, I think for me, I was in the predominantly white world sooner than I realized I was in the predominantly white sport. Um, growing up at Norbury Academy, I was at Norbury Academy from 11th grade to, I mean, from first grade to 11th grade and then the Blue Ridge School. Um, so, There's a recognition of the fact that you're you're the only one or, or one of few. Um, it might be a recognition from a visual, you know, look standpoint when you're younger. But I was also very, uh, very aware early on that financially, uh, from a socioeconomic standpoint, I wasn't in the same boat as a lot of my peers. Um, and I think that was that was the realization more so than race. And, but then as you get older, you start to realize how the two are intertwined. Um, and, and so I think for me, when it came down to lacrosse and being the only one, that was never a big deal because I was good. Athletically, you know, or athletics in general tend to be an equalizer. Yeah. And, um, and especially when you're as good or better than your peers at a young age, like that becomes, that becomes a factor that, that automatically makes you, um, you know, part of the in group and part of the in crowd and um, somebody that people like and like to be around. 
And, um, and so I never really had an issue socially. In, in fact, it was more interesting and sometimes awkward if I would go out to like, let's say I was going out to rec football practice and I brought my lacrosse stick with me. Then people were like, dude, what is that? Nobody, nobody knew what the heck it was. And, um, you know, and, and then the few that did were like, oh, that's the white guy sport, right? So that was more um, marginal, marginalizing is a heavy word, but it, it's in some ways accurate um, than it was uh, being black in an independent school environment. Um, but again, as you grow older and you become a little more aware of certain things, um, that's when that's when it starts to factor in. You know, when you're when you're in a locker room and you're you're hearing certain, whether it's jokes or um, whatever, it, it just I think that's when when it becomes a reality that hey, this is a little different and this is a little um, not awkward, but like you're not into the same things. My my experience, I didn't I didn't spend much time, and I've said this numerous times. Um, I didn't spend much time with the lacrosse team because I what, it was important for me from from the time I got to Brown, um, you know. And part of it was it's because I had spent so much time in a predominantly white institution. It was like it was important for me to establish myself within the black community there. Yeah. And so that's what I did. And from, from the very beginning, my closest friends um, were black at Brown, um, which is interesting given the amount of time you spend, you know, with lacrosse, whether it was film or workouts or games or practices or um, so, and then, and then culturally and socially, the events that I was going to were typically rooted in the black community. And then, but my teammates weren't going to those events. I probably went to more uh, events that were campus-wide or that were, you know, with the lacrosse team than my lacrosse teammates went to events that were in the black community or, um, or focused on that community. Um, so it, it was certainly interesting. And I think it's tougher now I'm realizing, I think for players than it was for me, because one, I was able to navigate that from not only from, you know, late high school to, to college to the professional level, um, but I was able to navigate it because I had been in that environment so long. I knew how to, to function on both sides of it. I knew how to code switch. I knew how to speak one way for, for survival in this area and survival in this area. Mm -hmm. I understood that and I knew what it was all about. Um, I think if you're a black person, player, whatever, that grows up in a, a typically black neighborhood, a typically black school, black family, and then you come into this environment, that's like culture shock immediately. Um, and, and you're immediately aware of it. And then the other piece of it, which makes it I think more difficult right now is the social media aspect, right? Like. People, I, I'm thinking about, um, I've been having some conversations with some old like classmates and teammates because as this whole thing has erupted in the last five months, six months, whatever it was, you know, you're getting a lot of social media accounts, black at this school, black at this school, 
or you know black alumni groups coming together and all of this and you're hearing certain stories about things that happened or took place and the way people felt while they were at these schools and in these environments and i'm i think for a lot of i don't want to say older but like people my age and and up there are certainly certain incidents and there are certainly ways that people felt that were very uncomfortable. But now with social media, you've got people that are just emboldened who will say all kinds of crazy things that nobody would have ever said to us. Yeah. In person, in definitely not in writing where, they, where somebody could take it back to them and they could be held accountable for it. No way. Um, and, and so I actually think it is tougher now than it was when I was coming up um, because kids really have to deal with that. And, and they have to deal with it at an age where they're not necessarily sure how to deal with it, especially if it's your friends, right? Like if, if these are the people that are your teammates or, or your people you eat lunch with on a daily basis or sit in class with on a daily basis, um, you know, I may have had friends that had certain thoughts and feelings about whether it was about black people or whether it was about Democrats versus Republicans, whatever it is, but they didn't voice it the same way and they, they weren't as reckless about it. Now, here's, here's a guy that I'm, you know, is on my team, but now I see he said this on social media yeah. and I have to look at him funny now because I'm like, how does he really feel about me if this is how he's talking publicly? Right. And then it's like, if you like something or if you don't like something. Yeah. Retweet something or if you don't retweet something, if you say something, yeah. or don't say something, it's it it's all become public and then and it's all become political. Yeah. And I feel like the politics of the whole thing is just eliminating the the, the basic humanity of the of this, which is you know, human rights, equal rights, justice for all. Yeah, and and the unfortunate reality is that um, it does feel like it's becoming like everything is becoming politics, but so much of it is actually has always been rooted in politics, right? It's always been rooted in, you know, how this country has viewed and treated certain people, not just, you know, on a day-to-day person-to-person basis, but from a systemic um, an institutional standpoint. And I, I think that's where there's sort of this reckoning and recognizing like people are, people are realizing that things haven't changed as right. much as we like to believe they have, you know, and, and, you know, 2020 is not the same as 1956. But it's also not that different in, in a lot of ways. Um, you know, and you look at, you, you think about, uh, the Jim Crow era and it's like, we're not that far removed. And so when you think about how long, um, how long this country has participated in, um, these acts and these, um, systems of doing things, it, it becomes ingrained. And so it's not necessarily about one person does this, one person does that, and or, or or generalizing and saying everybody's racist or everybody is this or everybody's that. But it is about those systems. It is about us participating and taking part and benefiting um, 
or not benefiting from these systems that, that were in place up until, you know, not very long ago. Right. Um, and so it change is not going to happen overnight, but I, I feel like, you know, change has been requested politely and otherwise for, for years and years and years and years and years now. And so people are getting impatient, um, you know, if they weren't already. So it, it's it's certainly a, a tricky tricky space that we're living in right now, and um, I think from an educational standpoint, from a lacrosse standpoint, you know, from an athlete standpoint, it, it is it is tough right now um, because you go you go to bat and go to war with guys on a daily basis, and you say, hey, this is my brother, this is my teammate, this is the guy that I love, and this is the guy that I gotta you know sacrifice for, but that's on the field like that that's that's a game and it's like if i can't trust him in life if i can't trust what he's really thinking here how can i trust him no in the locker room so you've got a lot of listeners on this podcast that are coaches and parents from a predominantly white sport a lot of white white people i'm a white guy i'm a white coach um what what's your advice for people that care for people that want to do something yeah. That don't really feel like getting destroyed on social media, but, but actually want to do something real. What, what would your advice be? Yeah, that, that's a tough one. And, um, you know, I think you hit the nail on the head in terms of like not trying to get destroyed on social media, but it is a fine line, right? Like, so as a coach, we tell our guys like leadership isn't pretty, right? Sometimes you're gonna have to be an asshole, excuse my language, right? Like sometimes you gotta actually step up and say something or do something that's not favorable with your teammates. Yeah, something they may, a joke that's inappropriate, you say something. Well, but, but even beyond that, right? Like in general, like that guy's not running the, he's not running through the line. As a leader, you, you need to let him know. And he might not like that. And he might not care for it. And he might not like being called out about it, right? But you still have to do it. And that's, I think that translates. That's why, you know, sports and life are so great, right? That translates. If we're really serious, we have to be willing to take a hit every now and then. We have to know that, like, it may get really uncomfortable with some people that we really care about. Or that we, you know, people that we thought were or think feel, believe are our friends or our family, whoever. Um, it, it could get really uncomfortable, but you've got to be willing to lean. If you're serious about it, you've yep. got to be willing to lean into that discomfort. Now, I'm also not a big fan of like, hey, you have to do everything publicly and you have to say this, that, or the third on social media. Like there's people doing great work that aren't on social media, right? They're, like. So I'm not a big fan of like, hey, you, you have to do it this way or that way. But what I will say is if you're gonna, and, and I know this is a bone of contention that people, that certain you know, of my, my counterparts have, have brought up is like, if you're, gonna, if you're gonna say something publicly when it's convenient, like also be willing to say it publicly when it's not convenient. Let's yeah. not just show up because it's the right thing to do at this moment. Let's show up because it's the right thing to do at every moment. There were a lot of people 
um, you know, when all this stuff was jumping off that were very willing to say Black Lives Matter or very willing to participate in whatever it was, Blackout Tuesday and put up a black screen on your social media and yada, 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 right? Like, but where are those people two months, three months later when all of this stuff is still going on? Or when other related issues pop up, where are you? Um, so I, I'm not a big fan of saying, again, you gotta go be on social media talking, 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 talking. But what I would say is first thing, educate yourselves. I'm not, I, this is not the work that I do on a daily basis. So I don't have every answer. I can't explain everything in a way um, that is, is airtight, in a way that is rooted in every, you know, every nuanced way of, of thinking about this. Um, but we all have the same time in the day and we all have access to the internet and everything else. And, um, you know, it is not my responsibility and I'm not putting this on, on you or anybody else, but it's not my responsibility as a black person to tell you how to help black people right now or how to learn about all the things that you weren't taught before that you should have been taught before that we should have been taught before. Yeah. Um, and so that's the very first thing I would, I would say is like, really go back if you're serious about the work, right? Yep. Some people are just not serious about it. But if you're serious about it, go educate yourselves on what is, what, what are the roots of all of this? Like, where did this start? Why did it start? How has it changed? How has it not changed? Um, we can't just look at everything at face value and say, I don't agree with this because my experience shows me otherwise. Your experience is not the same as all these people that are going through this. Right. Um, and so I think that's the, the biggest piece of it. And then the other thing that I would say is find out what it is that you do do well and, and use that, right? Like that's your platform. If you're a writer, take the time to educate yourself and then do some writing, put that out there. If you're a coach, figure out the ways that you need to connect with people or how you can use your program to serve certain causes. Um, I think we just all have to figure out what we're good at and take that and, and run with it. It's not everybody's place and everybody's comfort level to go um, you know, march down the street in a protest. I, I'll tell you flat out, it's not for me. Like I, I have uh, been out to a couple of protests because I wanted to support, yeah, the cause, but also, you know, the specific people that were leading such that, that protest. Um, but it wasn't, it wasn't because I'm like, ah, let's go protest. Like, that's not me. That's not my personality. Um, so I'm very selective in what I say and how I say it, but, it, but, um, but if you're very serious about the work, you, you can still be selective and be productive, I think is, is the way to mention it. So educate yourself with, yep. with books or podcasts or documentaries. Um, yeah, all of it, man. There's some great ones. I think, you know, this is kind of. These are two easy ones that, you know, a lot of people are probably up on already. Um, or three easy ones, but I think they're, they're great to know. Uh, White Fragility is, is a very good book. 
Um, and I think it, it frames things in a way that makes it understand, right? Like if, if you're really open to actually learning about things, you, you got to put your own experiences aside. And I think that book helps you to do that. Okay. Um, but it, it's a great one. White fragility, um, how to be an anti-racist or anti-racist. That's a good one. And then from a documentary standpoint, although there are a ton of them, um, the 13th on Netflix is a great one. Um, you know, and these are three, three resources that are kind of everybody was up on for, you know, early on with this, but I think those are three really, really good starting points. That's so important for everybody to know, because I, I think there really are a lot of people that care and they don't, you know, like I do, but I, I don't really know yeah. what to do. And yeah. I, I'm not political on, on it really any levels. Like I, I just, right. suggest I'm, it's personal to me, but yeah. I do care about this and I would like to be able to affect change. And I feel like I try to in my everyday life. I don't necessarily right. in my public life. Yeah. Uh, but, and, but, but, but to that point. What? I'm sorry, go ahead. No, please. Well, I was going to say to that point, I think that's that's sort of why I started this with like educate yourselves, right? Because once you've educated yourself, then you can speak to other people from that standpoint, right? Then it's not a matter of arguing. It's not a matter. And you also have to recognize there's certain people that are just not going to change. Certain people are like, this is what I believe. Done deal, oh, right? We're not worried about those people. No, the, Nobody's worried about those because those, those aren't the people that you're going to change. Right. But it, once you've educated yourself, whoever you may be, right, whether it's you coach or whether it's somebody listening to this, once you've educated yourself and you can speak from that standpoint, now you have an avenue to speak to your friends who may not understand or who may be on the bubble, right? You have an opportunity to speak to whether it's your players or your family or whomever, right? From, but from a different standpoint than, hey, that's wrong or right. I don't like this, or this is, you know, Republican versus Democrat. Like, it doesn't have to be politicized. It can be actualized. It can be, exactly. you know, this is real information. This is really what happened. This is the real effect of it. This is why we're in this situation. And so I think that's why I think that, that, that educative part of it is so important when you talk about what can we do. Right. And it's also, you know, if you read those two books and watch the 13th on Netflix, you know, that's a commitment of your time and, it, it, and it's a, it's an actual commitment right. towards, towards something that's going to help, help the world, help humanity. Yeah. Um, and then as far as the piece of your voice and what you're good at, there's a million ways to do that. You know, not everybody has a blog or a podcast, but everybody has relationships. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Let's uh, switch gears and talk a little bit about Hampton lacrosse. Let's talk about it. So, um, so give us the update on, uh, on the program, what you're doing to try to try to build it in this insane COVID world we're living in. Yeah, man. And, uh, we're, um, yeah. First of all, let me, let me just start off with like, this is a really cool opportunity. And I think this is a really awesome program um there's there's no program in lacrosse and i would venture to say probably in college sports 
that is like Hampton University. You, you've got the obvious piece of, um, of it being an HBCU, right? And the only division one HBCU with a lacrosse program. But you've also got its foundations and like where the program started. We are literally living out somebody's dream. Like, like Hampton lacrosse in general, Hampton lacrosse began uh, with Michael Crawford, who was a student here who had played lacrosse in high school, came to the school, you know, that had no lacrosse team, came to the school knowing he, you know, he probably wasn't going to play lacrosse again. And then because that itch and because that experience uh, was so good to him, he wanted to start lacrosse. And so he went about doing that and then passed away as, as a senior. He went home for winter break and, and passed away. Oh. And so his mom picked up where he left off. Uh, awesome woman got it, got the whole thing started. And, um, you know, and, and then fast forward a handful of years and now all of a sudden it's a division one sport, a sport that maybe was never going to be considered in the first place at Hampton um, is now a division one program because of somebody's dream. And um, I think that's so important, but I also think it's just a phenomenal thing to be a part of. And, um, and so that's where we are. And, you know, to put some things in context, um, you know, I was an outsider for, for however many years until I got here. And, and so I certainly had my outside view of things and my, you know, I would say minimally informed view of things. Yeah. And, um, and I had my criticisms as well. Um, having been here, one of the things that I've realized and come to appreciate is that um, as a program and as an institution, the, educa the education was, was that important for them. So when they decided this was gonna be, um, and, and we're talking about educating the whole child, right? Educating the whole person, not just you know what you learn in the classroom, but um, as an educational institution, when they said, hey, we're gonna be a division one program, they could have said, all you guys, all you club guys gotta go. We're gonna bring in a coach. Um, you know, we're gonna put the scholarships behind it and we're gonna get, you know, we're gonna have all new guys that can compete at the division one level. That wasn't their approach. It was too important to them to say, hey, these guys were the ones that started this program. These guys are the ones that are responsible for this being here and they should get this experience and they should be able to enjoy this. And, and because it's something they'll never forget. It is part of their education. And, um, and I think that's, that's very important here. And, and so that kind of sets the scene for why it, it, it has taken a little bit of time to build. Um, but we're here now and we're, we're at a point where the, the, the school is ready to take that next step and move things forward. And, uh, and I'm just happy to be a part of it. I think we're, like everybody else in this weird space with COVID. Um, so we've been doing a lot of Zoom calls and trying to get guys to work out on their own. Uh, the thing that I think is really cool, we established early on with our guys. Now it's a matter of getting them to live up to it on a, on a daily and weekly basis. But we established the five pillars of, uh, of Hampton lacrosse. Um, and, and it came from, you know, it came from a Zoom call. It came from one of our, um, you know, one of our team discussions and, um, and those pillars are, are pride, respect, brotherhood, accountability, and toughness. And so now all of those things are being tested, right? Like 
how much pride do you have in this program? Like, well, what are the things that you're willing to do because you're proud to say you're a, a Hampton University lacrosse player? Um, you know, the accountability. Are you actually going out and doing these workouts every single day that, that you're supposed to be doing? Are you getting to the wall like you're supposed to? Are you finding yourself on the cage like you're supposed to? Um, you know, all, all of the different components of that are, are real. Like we've got a, our group chat right now, we've got guys asking each other for, for help, you know, in various classes, which, you know, maybe that doesn't even happen when we're, you know, on campus because you've got, um, you know, you've got your tutors and academic advisor and all this stuff, right? And you've got your other your other life. But now we're like, hey, who do I go to? Who do I rely on in, in this situation where I'm struggling with this class or this professor? I'm going to come back to the team. I'm going to go to my brothers on the team. And that's what that brotherhood piece is about, right? So I, I think that's one of the coolest things for me is that we established it so quickly. And, and they decided those were the tenants and the pillars that they felt should recognize not just they're, they're not the core values for this team right but those are the pillars that should uphold the whole program for years to come um, so that's where we are um, we're focused beyond that focused on recruiting and fundraising um, which are two as you know huge huge pieces for any program um, but for us specifically right now i want to talk about recruiting but before conference alignment we're, we're trying to get into a conference as well yeah so um, that's gonna be huge um, I want, I'd like to chat about both those topics, but let's let's just talk fundraising for a minute. If yeah. there are people out there that that might want to help Hampton Lacrosse, sure. How could they uh, get in touch with you? Yeah, so it's very easy to get in touch with me, chaz.woodson at hamptonu.edu. Um, so that that's the easiest way if you want to get in touch with me directly. Um, there are also a few other things that we're you know, we're working on from a standpoint uh, or from a fundraising standpoint, uh, we're trying to get, we're trying to raise uh, some money for scholarships. We're trying to raise um, more money for the operating budget just in general. Um, and, and we are looking to establish uh, an endowment for the program so that, you know, the long-term sustainability and stability of the program is intact. Um, but if you just want to donate to the program, you just, feeling generous or, or, or you like what you've heard so far or whatever, you can always also go to Hampton Nation, www.hamptonnation.com and, uh, and just donate. You just, it, it's really an easy process, um, but you just want to make sure that you click on men's lacrosse. Men's lacrosse. Well, I learned firsthand building the Denver program that, you know, fundraising is really everything. Fundraising was the reason why Denver got good. I mean, all the rest of the stuff is dependent upon fundraising because yep. your, your, your whole program is based on facilities, recruiting and schedule. And yep. that takes money. Yep. Yeah. So, uh, by the way, at Denver, for people listening, that the, we didn't at, at DU, 80% of the money we raised, which was around 10 million in the 11 years I was there was not alums. And so there was friends in the program. There were people in the community. There were people and their parents. And um, it, it, it made a huge difference. And so, uh, you know, it's great that you're, that you're on that. I'll talk a little bit about, the, the uh, speaking of schedule, I'll talk a little bit about the conference, um, what you're trying to do there. Yeah, well, I, and I don't want to say too much yet because I, I'm not sure where we stand. And I, I also know that uh, I, have, I have a meeting with our athletic director this afternoon. So I'm, I may have some information there. But 
we're looking at, uh, um, or we have, I should say, so far we have met with um, the SOCON. Uh, so you're talking Jacksonville, Mercer, High Point. Um, Richmond. Richmond. Air Force, Bellarmine. Air Force. That was the one I was missing. I know Furman's out. Um, and so we, we met with them, Bellarmine. Uh, we put together a, a, a decent presentation. Um, and so we're just kind of wait, waiting on word from them and, and see where that conversation goes, um, what the next steps are, if, you know, if there are going to be any next steps um, or if we need to look elsewhere. Um, but that's our first that's that's our first move because it, it geographically it makes the most sense. Um, and from a from a competitive standpoint, it makes the most sense, I think. Um, that's that's the conference that we would so probably be the most. We just actually found out that we're not going to be five years on yeah, this spring, if not sooner. Um, um, but certainly so, geographically, and, and ultimately, who knows? There may not be a lacrosse season anyway. We do. Um, we will for us, play that, that means schedule again. We'll just not, be um, digging into to again fundraising and recruiting primarily they, they from my standpoint and then that um, first wave and also already, like right like making sure the guys, guys have graduated doing what they need um, to do i think we're again at a point recruiting be wise where we're starting to get some today um higher meeting. caliber players now we're really going to um, find out 20 freshmen on the team right now um that now you've got brought in seven working on many months about 15 you're just gonna have to grind 14 to 15 guys right now plus some transfers is important for next year so do we're at that point where we are ready to take the next so step from a, a, a competitive standpoint and, and so play a Division One schedule. Uh, interesting um, space to be in right now. Perhaps yeah, it's pretty early, but, um, but you got to. But a fun that, space, right? like you got to get into that. I love this challenge phase of things, and that's what I've. Um, that's how I've framed it for the guys every week. This is a challenge, and this is this is what we this is what we have. This is what we're dealing with. We're not going to complain. We're going to find a way. Right. So. Little backyard lacrosse, right? <laughs> no, it's funny because not funny. It's sad, but you know, I've I've got two kids uh, in college, a daughter at ASU, a son at Georgetown, and it's very different everywhere you go. You know, I've talked to a ton of coaches uh, throughout the, the, the Division One lacrosse, and some of the some people are not in school. And some kids are in school and some people are practicing and it's kind of normal. Some people are practicing for the last six months and it's been in cohorts of 10 people with social right. drills. You know, right. I, I hate to say that not being in school could be an advantage, but it can be because you could actually play if you get kids together. And this is where the backyard lacrosse can actually help. You can lift. You, you, yeah, know, man. Not, you're, you don't have, you're not completely handcuffed. You can have a little bit of a normal semblance of, competition even if it's playing some hoops but you know you can actually become a better athlete yeah absolutely and, and that's what i mean we have built into their schedule one day of cross training where i've asked them to do something other than lacrosse um, but get out and be active for 60 minutes right like go play hoops go go play touch football or tackle football i don't know about tackle football right now but uh you know like just go do something um something other than um you know lacrosse and, and pick some pick some other skill sets up and, and just go be an athlete or go for a hike, go for a swim, go do something different yeah. um, as long as you're active. And, um, you know, I, I, and I know one of the tricky parts for some of our guys is like, they're not at school, which means they're at home, which means they're under the thumb of mom and dad. 
you know, and mom and dad are not all that hyped about them going out to play whatever they want to play. And, and you I know, man, it's really hard to have kids at home. We, uh, I have a daughter who's a senior in high school at home. And I kind of knew going into this year, you know, I'm either going like, to put her under my thumb and, and, and make her <laughs> 2020 worse, you know, yeah. we went back to school a couple of days a week, or I'm going to have to kind of, you know, roll the dice and, and hope for the best. Yeah. Of course, we all got COVID about three weeks ago, so. <laughs> exactly. But uh, we're through it. We got through it. Um, let's talk a little bit about recruiting. What's your philosophy on recruiting? And, and um, first of all, uh, what are you looking for? We're looking for guys that understand the game, um, that are athletic, that, that can be taught, right? Like, I can't spend time teaching the game and building you into an athlete. Right, you gotta have you gotta bring to the table one of those two right away. Like you gotta be a division one, division one level athlete that I can um, that I can teach the game to, or you gotta at least be able to teach the game, then we can make you a little stronger, a little bit better, bigger, faster. Um, but more importantly, we're looking for guys that fit the bill, those those five pillars, right? Like guys that are really gonna grind, guys that that understand that we're building something here from the ground up and, and that understand, hey. This might not be pretty for the first year, two years, whatever, but like I'm committed to it and, and I'm going to jump into this full speed and um, and I'm with it. And, and, and I know the payoff is going to be at the end. Guys that understand that when they come back, um, you know, 10, 15, 20 years from now, they're, they're going to say, hey, I got to be a part of building that. So like I, I'm invested not just in these the success of this team this year or next year, I'm invested in the long-term success of this program. That's what I want to see. Um, you know, that's the kind of philosophical standpoint, but we're looking for good students. That's another piece of this, um, <clears throat> excuse me. And then, um, and then from, from a lacrosse standpoint, we're building from the back end up, right? So um, I, it doesn't matter if, if we can score 15, 16, 17, 18 goals, like if we're giving up 20. Um, and that's where we, we have to stop the bleeding. That was the first priority as soon as we started the recruiting process is like, we got to get defenders in here and we got to get goalies in here. And, um, you know, and that's not to take away from any of the guys that we have right now, but that's, that's where we want to start. Um, physical, smart um, defenders um, that, that aren't afraid to go out and, and challenge people and they can run with guys. Um, I'm not all that hell bent on like, I gotta have a six two, you know, 200 pound defender. Um, but they have to be guys that can handle their sticks and they have to be guys that again, are, are smart and not guys that are gonna go out and get a penalty every time. Not guys that are gonna, that don't know how to close out. Like you gotta be able to get out there, sit down, close out, take away a side, you know, all those basic lacrosse things that we want out of, out of, uh, out of our defenders at the college level. Um, and it doesn't help if you can pick up the ball and push transition and do some fun things with it. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, obviously we got to have, we would like to play an up-tempo game. Um, you know, I, I like transition lacrosse. I, I, I think it's the way to go. I think that's what makes it fun. I think you've seen that uh, play itself out with Brown, with Virginia, with Albany, uh, some of these other up-tempo teams, old school cues. Um, you know, I, I think, and obviously you have to have, players that can handle that kind of responsibility, players that can make decisions. 
Um, but that's what that's the way we would ideally like to play. Um, so we do need middies that understand the game and can make decisions at game speed um, and good decisions at game speed. Um, and the same with the attackmen. So that's kind of where we are right now. Uh, we, we've got some good prospects in, in, in this 21 class. Uh, I'm really excited about the 22s and I obviously can't talk to the 23s, but there's some, some guys I'm very, very interested in the 23 class. That's awesome. Are you going to recruit um, Canadians? Yes, we're, I, we're recruiting. That's the other things like, yes, it's an HBCU, but, and, and, and that's another kind of interesting component, right? Like you have to be comfortable with being at an HBCU and being in a predominantly black environment, um, which kind of comes back to where we were talking about before, right? Like is how many young black men are all that comfortable being in a predominantly white environment? Well, if you've grown up in that environment, if you've been to those schools, it makes it a little bit easier. Yeah. Not too many white players that I know have grown up in these predominantly white, uh, I mean, predominantly black schools. Some have. Yeah. Um, so that's that's another kind of interesting component to the recruiting process. And we've I've found that it hasn't been too big a deal yet, um, but we are recruiting everybody, black, white, Asian, other, whatever. We're recruiting everybody. And to that point, yes, we are recruiting some Canadians as well. That's awesome. You can, uh, if you can recruit, you can win. And um, it's going to be the game. exciting uh, to see how you guys take it. I hope people listening to this podcast uh, chip in. It'd be awesome because uh, yeah, raising is huge. Um, and uh, the recruiting, it is fun. It's exciting. You know, it's like your, your own uh, you know, fantasy team. I, I, I just wish I could get out and actually watch some kids right now. Like I'm tired of staring at YouTube um, all day, every day, but, uh, but yeah, it is, it is fun. And, and then, like you said, it's, you know, you're building your own thing. And, and that's to me, college lacrosse coaching collegiately was never like the big goal, the ultimate goal. And what I always said to people that asked me about it was like, I'm not going to go anywhere where I can't build it my own way. Mm-hmm. And here we are, where where they're allowing me to build it my way and yeah, back home, uh, and back home. And so, this is going to be a fun fun deal, man. Yeah. Well, congratulations on the new gig. I know it must be Thank so you. difficult to do it on Zoom, but you're doing like you said. You just taking what you're handed, and you're going to make the best of it. Um, yep. Really appreciate you taking the time and coming on and uh, hearing your journey, hearing your philosophies, and your experience. Yeah, Coach, thank you, man. I appreciate the time. Awesome, Jeff.